You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jed Kershaw had his hands in the air for emphasis. He was a little man and he used his hands a lot, held them high over his head and waggled his fingers. The sergeant had initially found this odd. It made Kershaw look like a small circular wizard casting spells which never worked, or that puppet show his sister had told him about where the puppets took off all their clothes until they were finally just hands again. But you got used to it and the temptation to talk up into Kershaw's palm faded away until the American was just another bit of life on the island. Kershaw would have rejected that idea because Mancro drove him crazy. He was forever shouting at his staff and down the phone, demanding that the place work properly, behave itself with something like sanity, function in some way which made sense, because he was the bridge between the world where things did make sense and the small blue circle in this ocean where they didn't have to. But what really drove Jed Kershaw crazy, he said, what was going to kill him if this whole situation wasn't resolved pretty soon now, any day now, was how British Mancro was. Kershaw had long ago realized, apparently, that dealing with Brits was tricky. You had to listen to what a Brit was saying, which was invariably that he thought XYZ was a terrific idea and he hoped it went very well for you, while at the same time paying heed to the greasy, nauseous suspicion you had that, although every word and phrase indicated approval, somehow the sum of the whole was that you'd have to be a mental pygmy to come up with this plan and a complete fucking idiot to pursue it. After six years working with the Brits in various theatres, he'd come to the conclusion that they didn't do it on purpose. The thing was, Brits actually thought that subtext was plain text. To a Brit, the modern English language was vested with hundreds of years of unbroken history and cultural nuance, so that every single word had a host of implications depending on who said it, to whom, when and how. British soldiers gave entire reports to their commanders by the way they said good morning sir, and then had to spend half an hour telling them the detail, which was why the Brits always looked bored in meetings. Originally, when he believed it was some sort of snobbish post-colonial joke, this all had made Kershaw dislike the Brits, but now apparently he sort of admired it. His brother Gabe was a literature professor at Brown, and when Kershaw had brought this up with him, Gabe nodded and said, yeah, absolutely, but you had to read T.S. Eliot to understand. So Jed Kershaw had bought The Wasteland from Amazon.com and read it here in Mancra. The Wasteland was a terrifying document of gasping psychological trauma, and it was plenty relevant to the island, but the important point about it was that Eliot was trying to make use of something called an objective correlative, which was an external reference point everyone would understand in the same way without fear of misapprehension. Kershaw found this revealing, he said, because it was very British. Only a British poet, and for Kershaw's purposes, Eliot was one, would imagine that the gap between people living in the same street was so enormous that you had to read the entire body of English language poetry from 1500 to the present day in order to have a background which would allow you to communicate something as simple as your dog is pissing on my lawn and be reliably understood. Only a Brit could be so appalled by the staggering complexities of meaning which could be found in the word piss that he felt it was necessary to read Paradise Lost and the Mayor of Casterbridge in order to be certain he wasn't getting the wrong end of the stick. And for sure, only a Brit would imagine that adding a a huge raft of literary imagery into the sea of human emotion and history that was English would clarify the situation in any way at all. All the same, there was something glorious in that complexity, in the fact that Brit communication took place in the gaps between words and in the various different ways of agreeing, which meant no. <laughs> Sorry about that. I confess, I actually love that part so much, I read it aloud to my wife. <laughs> That's, that's the plan. That's, that's, that's what I want. I want everybody reading that part aloud. Um, 
it was it was obviously great fun to write and uh, in the sort of strictest construction of writing I should have considered cutting it but I never did <laughs> it sounds like something you'd say just uh, standing on the street corner <laughs> <laughs> Nick Harkaway is the author of the novels the gone away world and angel maker a nonfiction of the study of the digital world the blind giant being human in a digital world and an e short Edie investigates and doctor who keeping up with the Joneses his new novel is Tiger Man. Thank you for joining me, Nick. It's a pleasure. Nick, this is such a, a fascinating novel, full of heart, full of adventure, and full of story. And one of the most interesting things you do with this novel is the characters you create. And there's a character you create who hovers in the background to a certain extent for much of the novel, but also overshadows the whole novel. Talk about creating the island of Man Crew. First of all, I, I had visited a couple of islands, and I, uh, Tenerife, which is in the Canaries, is this beautiful, blasted volcanic island with a lot of tourist stuff on it. But the island is essentially a volcano with stuff around it, and it feels as if it might go at any moment. Um, I mean, it feels that way to me because I'm naturally neurotic about things like that. I, everyone else in the world just goes there and has a great time. I'm looking at the volcano all the time, wondering when it's going to start shaking and juddering. So I had that in my mind. And at the same time, in in uh, in the news, and the, uh, at least for a while, there was the island of Diego Garcia, which is a British Indian Ocean Territories island, where uh, allegedly a large number of bad things have happened. Uh, the British government had to retrace its steps. The, the the foreign minister was called into Parliament to, uh, to discuss whether or not a rendition flight had touched down there, which in the UK is, I think, starkly illegal. There's no ambiguity about it. Uh, and he said no, and then later it emerged uh, that it maybe had happened and it had to be called back to Parliament to explain himself and so on. It was a huge deal for a while. And so this sense of this small island in the middle of the ocean where bad things happen was very much there. Um, and then when I came to be doing the, uh, the actual kind of the way that the place looked, and particularly this beautiful town, this kind of tumble-down, catastrophic, Moss Isley kind of disaster zone of, of uh, basically a kind of Casablanca that's on, on, on the island. Um, uh, I was thinking of a place in Italy called Loco Rotondo, which I rather prosaically named the, the round place. Um, but it is round. It's on a hilltop, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful white stone town. Uh, and the old town in particular, I, I just pillaged for Mancra, for, for the town of Beauville. Um, and yes, as you say, in the background uh, all the time, there is this, this shadowy figure. Talk about creating the main character. He has a name, Lester, but his he, we mostly know him as the sergeant, and he seems to be the epitome of British. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, the point about the fact that he's mostly called the sergeant is that he's put himself so thoroughly into that role. He's really had very little room for anything else in his life, which is why he's in the situation he's in, where he has no family and he's f approaching forty. You know, and, and he's looking at being in the in the British Army. They retire you from active service at 40, so he's uh, from combat duty. So he's, uh, he's looking at his world changing absolutely, and he's effectively going to be pensioned off. Um, and so uh, here he is, and he has, as you say, this, this sort of sole identity of the sergeant, and he obviously also has a name. Um, but he's, he's diffident about becoming someone else, not used to being in 
uh, officer level authority because again we don't have uh, promotion from the ranks in the same way that you do in the states so if you're a non-commissioned officer you're probably going to stay that way um, so uh, he's got a distinct image of himself and a desire not to be ridiculous or to seem absurd and yet here he is in this absurd situation so you know and and the the fear of being embarrassed to Brits is very very strong so he has this diffidence and this sense of of not wanting to put a foot wrong on so many different levels he's not used to operating with this kind of authority he's not used to operating as a diplomat he's basically a sergeant he's a squad leader um, you know he's out of water all the time um, but at the same time of course in his area of competence he is extraordinary um, so you know he has this completely other set of skills which don't belong really in the job he's been asked to do which is the job of looking the other way and being diplomatic and walking the beat I, I really like your sense of him because in a sense the, uh, a large part of the novel is just uh, Lester the sergeant getting to know who he, who he is and getting to know himself yeah, and of course for me also, you know, that was the journey. I was getting to know Lester um, and sort of making sure that he was he was the person that he was supposed to be. And um, he doesn't, for example, I mean, in my writing, I like to use language. I like to use a lot of linguistic flair. And, you know, with Angel Maker and Gone Away World, you see a lot of, of kind of goofy, over-the-top language. With Tiger Man, you see less. Occasionally, I let myself kind of enjoy it a bit. But with, I mean, Lester uses very little uh, in the way of kind of, Donish language. He's you know he's not that person. Um, he doesn't use a lot of Latin phrases. So incredible is not a word he would use. Um, uh, impossible. You know he he tries to, um, or I tried in writing him to stay with uh, Germanic, uh, you know, and and Anglo-Saxon language, so that it would so that he wouldn't feel because to me the, the Latinate words are the language of academics, and that's not who he is. So I was kind of traveling through that with him, always pruning back the way he was thinking, the way he was talking, uh, and, and reaching out for somebody who has a much more direct perception of the world. And that would be the boy, a fascinating character. You have so much fun with this kid. Yeah, I really did. I mean, the thing is, I mean, obviously all characters are the reflections of the people who create them. So, you know, with, with Lester, everything is, you know, is the sort of immediate person and these very strong senses of obligation and of, you know, of fatherhood because I was about to become a dad when I started writing the book and so on. Um, and then with the boy, it's about kind of joy and geekiness and he's this bouncy, effervescent, uh, excitable, driven kid. Um, and he's into comics and games and movies and so on and that's how he uh, expresses everything. He's, he sees everything in those terms. He's he's very smart, um, but his you know his language. I mean, he's. I think one of the first times we see him, he's wearing a shirt or a hat that says "Hand Shot First," obviously about the, the the rejig of the Star Wars movies. For me, that's a religious issue. You know, I, I actually I have that shirt and I wore it uh, to a convention the other day because you know it's really important to me. It's very clear cut. Hand shot first. Everyone should know that. You know, and yeah, sure, you can mess around with CGI all you like, but that's still actually really important about that character, and it's you know it's important to the movie. So you know, he has these very strong perceptions on issues of pop culture, and and you know, one does. Well, that's one of the things I think you do so well in this book is to. Um, explore how 
important pop culture and the kind of mythos that we live in create are to us and how they how we create them and they turn around right around and create us I think that's right I mean they really do I think there was a, an American writer Robert Warshaw I thought a really interesting cultural critic and he wrote about the Western and the gangster and he writes about and I quoted him at the beginning of Angel Maker as, uh, and he, he writes about the gangster as the man of the city with its queer skills and it's it's sort of strange and unusual abilities and so on so you think about lock picking and uh, you know, and and how I don't know how you bribe an official. You know, those are gangster skills. You know, and with this, um, you know, I, I I sort of had that sense of that kind of analysis. You know, that I think, you know, Warshaw does write about superheroes, but not quite to the same extent. But you know, the superhero stories, um, they define how we think about the world on a level that we're sometimes not aware of. You know, because it, they're about being the perfect iteration of a given idea. So. You know, Superman is this idea that someone will always swoop down from the sky and save you, or that if you are empowered, that's what you should do. You know, the Superman story, um, you know, is is about coming in at the last minute. It's the cavalry arriving. It's all that. The Batman story is very different. It says, you know, you pick yourself up off the floor and you dig your heels in and you never give up. It's a, you know, it's a completely different version. It's a self-reliance story. Um, you know, and and. You know, different superheroes and different archetype characters reflect these things in different ways, and they really do. They, they affect us, and you know, those narratives are how we perceive the world. And you know, when um, when people were starting to object strongly to the things that were happening in Guantanamo Bay and so on, you know, one of the things that cropped up was how often the TV show Twenty Four had been discussed in the Bush administration while they were, you know, while they were preparing to do these things. You know, um, uh, that you know that they had effectively kind of taken inspiration from Jack Bauer. And the thing about Jack Bauer is he's he's a fictional character, he's a superhero character. You know, it was supposed to be entertainment. It was never supposed to be geopolitical commentary, right? I mean, you know, so it's extraordinary, but that's the stuff that happens. It's, you know, and of course it's true because these are the fantasies everybody lives with, right? I mean, whatever your profession is, you know, you look for the kind of dramatized version of it to, to sort of see how to act. And it's very interesting if you watch kind of thrillers and action thrillers and so on through the years and you kind of look at the dates on them, there's a period where the way that you can tell someone is a bad guy in an action movie is that they torture someone. or they, In fact, there's a, there's a, there are sequences where waterboarding you know, comes up and that's how you tell someone's a bad guy because they would do such a terrible thing. And then you get a new breed of movies and, and shows and so on where it's much more ambiguous or it's even a positive. And that's extraordinary. You know, that's a reflection of, of uh, a, a desired or an achieved shift in public perception. Um, and so these stories, well, you know, uh, across the kind of hero archetype spectrum are definitive and they're also canaries and coal mines. They tell us what's happening. Well, you talk about stories. I think one of the things that's really strong in this book is the sense of stories and the way the the power that story has, and all, and also just the definition of what a story is. The 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 boy at one point, you say the boy is ve he was very particular about continuity. He had told the sergeant in so many words, events should happen in their proper time. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean. You know, this is okay. This is a personal beef. I mean, just in terms of storytelling, right? <laughs> that I think some of the 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 movies that get made right now are unwilling to spend the time developing the situation 
in order to have the payoff of the fight scene or whatever. And I was saying this to someone the other day about fight scenes in my, in my books because I think it's, it's really important. And fight scenes are hard to do in books. I mean, it's much less a kinetic visual medium. So, you know, you have to, you've got to work harder. Um, but the point about a fight scene is that you have to want to throw the punch. By the time the fight scene happens, you've got to feel that the person who's about to get hit, uh, you know, the hero's going to win or whatever, they deserve to get hit very, very hard. Um, and in fact, really, you know, you want to be kind of going woof at the end, um, you know, when the guy wins or, you know, because otherwise the fight is not interesting. It's, it's balletic, you know, that's all it is. Um, and so, I mean, there are great punches in cinematic history. A Chili Palmer's punch in, in um, uh, what is the name of the movie? Uh, Pulp Fiction? No, but John Travolta, exactly. Um, and he goes to Hollywood. He's a loan shark. It's an Alma Leonard book. Uh, and he goes to Hollywood and, and decides he doesn't want to be a loan shark anymore, he should be a movie producer. Um, uh, this is going to drive me nuts now. Anyway, he throws a punch through a door. A guy's taken his coat from a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he finds the guy and he just throws open the door and punches him in the face and takes the coat. And that's the entire conversation between them. And it's the biggest punch ever. This huge hand comes through the door and the guy's nose is flat against his face. This is a great sequence. Um, and you know that's a great punch, but you you know you, you kind of feel it. You know you know it's there. Um, uh, whereas I think there are you know sequences in action movies, particularly you know whatever, where you're just sitting there going, "Hang on, I, you know I haven't had time to relate to this character yet. I don't know. I don't know what the stakes are. You know, okay, the stuff, the fight arranging is spectacular, but I don't care. You know. So the boy is absolutely right, and of course I think that because I made him say it because I think it's true. You know, but things have to happen in their proper time. You have to have the sequence. And it's true about the first kiss on the screen. There's no point having a romantic comedy where, I mean, you could do it, but then you've got to mess things up. Having a romantic comedy where the first scene is the couple meet and they kiss. I mean, because, you know, then it's a done deal. Things have to happen in their proper time. You know, uh, this book has such a great feeling to, to it because we have this sergeant, he's very disconnected from his own feelings, and he often refers him to himself within himself as the sergeant told himself he had to do these things. But one of the things he doesn't tell himself is how he starts to feel immediately about the boy, which is protective and fatherly. And I think you do a fabulous job of creating this kind of rain cloud of incipient fatherhood. He doesn't know how to do it. He sort of, he has an inkling. You know, he has, he has, I mean, actually the crazy thing is he really does know how to do it. He knows very well, but he lacks the confidence to, to execute that, you know, and he's actually had a lot of experience kind of with, what, 17, 18 year old kids because he's, you know, he's a sergeant. That's what you do. Um, but he is, in this context, diffident because he doesn't feel he has the legitimate ground to be that person yet. They haven't formalized it, you know, so he's very hands-off and it, I mean you know in sort of Shakespearean terms that's that's a sort of fatal flaw you know he needs actually to commit but hesitation is is part of the shape of what he's doing because he's t for heaven's sake turning himself into a new person he's becoming something he's never been before and he's at emotional risk almost for the first time in his life you know certainly for the first time in his life as an adult because he really hasn't been there at all so you know he's just he's in this impossible place 
I, and speaking of impossible places, I, I love one of the things I like about uh, Man Crew is the way you've given it this kind of. You referred to Moss Eisley. It has it has a very science fictionish feel. There's these clouds that come out and may or may not change people. I love that kind of uh, surreal aspect you've added to the story. I just yeah, it just seemed to me that it. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure why I did that. It just seemed appropriate. I wanted what was happening on the island to be sufficiently nuts, I think. You know, the, the cause of the, of the whole thing to be sufficiently disturbing that you could believe then that, you know, that, that the international community would actually get together because heaven knows they're not terribly good at being unanimous about stuff um, and say, we have to destroy this island. You know, we, we, have to, we, we have to raise this place to the ground and sterilize it because otherwise something dramatic could happen. And then, of course, the normal course of, of geopolitics resumes and it's convenient to have this place where there is notionally no law and they start using it and then, of course, that's a self-perpetuating thing. So then they don't really, you know, they're kind of, they're hesitating and hesitating and delaying and delaying with this sterilization, which may or may not be helpful in the first place because, it, you know, the other thing, I don't know whether you have the same experience in the US, I'm guessing that you do, but here in the UK, there is this extraordinary disjunct between the scientific evidence for things and what government does about them. <laughs> So and it's, it, it is really, it's, it's, we, do, we do a lot of, of uh, policy-based evidence making here. But the, I mean, the thing is, for example, there is a constant, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous. Uh, no, right? back up. That was a great phrase. Say it again. Policy-based policy -based evidence making. Um, <laughs> as opposed to the thing that we ought to be doing, which obviously is the opposite. So, no, but there is, um, there is this is going to sound so extraordinarily British, and you're going to kind of laugh, but I'm going to say it anyway. So there is this ongoing debate about whether we should cull badgers in the United Kingdom. Badgers are viewed as a pest. There's an issue with whether they will infect cattle with tuberculosis and so on and so on. Scientifically, it seems to be reasonably clear that culling badgers does not help. It pushes the remaining badgers out into the countryside. It does various other things. It doesn't seem to uh, produce the desired result. But it is popular with various lobbying groups. It doesn't require that you vaccinate cattle against tuberculosis, which is difficult because then they test positive for tuberculosis, I think, when you try to export them. There's a whole kind of raft of reasons why the wrong answer is clearly the answer which is politically the easiest. But we have this ongoing thing. Every government has it. They have this, this kind of discussion about whether they need to do a badger cull. And you know, there's always a debate. And then you know, this time around, there was a badger cull. And last time there wasn't. And it always makes people angry. And there's always this slightly stupid argument. And the thing is that as far as I can tell, the science is quite clear cut. It's pointless. So let's do something else. And it always comes up as that we should do this. And it seems to me that that's probably a global phenomenon. Probably governments, are not specifically related to badgers, but just in general, governments receiving advice that is not politically helpful from scientists tend to kind of stick their fingers in their ears and scream. I think this comes up in the discussion of marijuana as well. Turns out marijuana, probably not terribly bad for you. But there's a certain, again, there's a certain segment of the population that finds that essentially to be terrifying and evil, and therefore government's very unwilling to say it out loud, despite the fact that really a startling percentage of any country at any given time is probably stoned. Um, and some of them probably even work in government. Um, so, you know, this ongoing thing with like, we can't hear about the science right now. Science is somehow impractical. It's a strange notion, but anyway. So we have to do this other thing. So it seems to me that as soon as you have that, uh, you know, that in this context, when you have a, a, a potentially dangerous toxic event emerging from an island, 
there's going to be you know there's going to be a group saying we should immediately sterilize the island despite the fact that the science on the ground is kind of equivocal about whether that's actually a good idea it, this is all a backdrop to this great what is essentially uh, exactly a superhero origin story and the superhero is in the title of the book tiger man and you do a great job of leading up to it with a couple of little events did talk about orchestrating this to that first incredible scene where a tiger man comes out i mean it is so stonkingly exciting to read it, it just so knocked every fun. movie out of my mind uh, so i'd like you to talk about that kind of uh, prose orchestration well so i mean the thing i was saying about things have to happen in their proper time um because it's a little while to get to that moment but by the time you get there, you really want it to happen. And you care about it, you know, you, you, you want him to become this guy. Um, so that's the first thing, as you say, it is, a, it is orchestration. It's about putting enough, um, I guess, compression into the springs of the story that you're really ready for them to fire and to send us into, into the next level of the story. Um, so, I mean, it's, first of all, you know, you have this, I mean, first of all, you have this guy who is, you know, physically competent but emotionally diffident who has this various problems which specifically I mean essentially relate to the fact that he wants to be a father to this boy and he's been told he's not allowed to see what's happening and the boy wants him to see what's happening so he has attention um, and then as you say there's a kind of sequence of events that sort of eventually put him in a situation where he's going to put on the suit you know and each of those adds to either directly to that tension or builds in some more you know of what's going on and the situation becomes impossible and part of that is uh, I mean okay so first of all that's that's um, straightforward kind of classic myth structure stuff and I, my background is as a screenwriter so the kind of Joseph Campbell hero's journey thing is very familiar to me so classically uh, the possibility of heroism comes knocking on your hero's door and the hero will send this possibility away, doesn't want to know anything about it because he's content with the life that he has on one level or another, you know, or because his attention is elsewhere. The situation gets worse and worse until eventually he has no choice, and then greater and greater difficulty presents itself before finally he can act in such a way as to pay off the kind of heroic debt and restore some kind of order to his universe. That's the cycle, and that's the kind of classic Star Wars shape. Um, and Lucas is very open about that. You know, he's like he was reading as Joseph Campbell. So in a sense, that's what happens here. And so it's following a very well-worn path. And that's, I mean, you talk about it being a superhero origin story, and that's also true. Although in a weird way, I didn't think about it like that. Um, uh, and the, I guess the point about that development is also that it's trying to create a situation where you believe that in his shoes you would actually do this, because we, I mean, in the story, he is conscious of the fact that putting on a superhero suit is nuts. You know, and it is, you know, it is an extraordinary thing to do, but the point about it is that in the name of parental love, you would absolutely do something that nuts. I mean, I have found the experience of becoming a parent to be absolutely overwhelming. Um, it's you know, transformative. It's trans I think it is transformative. And I, you know, and I use the term parent in that sense very loosely. I, you know, I, I don't care about whether you're talking about uh, fostering or adopting or whatever. I'm not talking about a sort of biological transformation. I'm just saying, you know, that the moment you take on that role mm -hmm. with someone, you are transformed. Your priorities become different. 
you know, there is a, 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 a different structure to how you tackle every single decision in your life because there is another player. Um, you know, and if you're a couple, then you become a triangle, you know, whatever. It's, it, you know, it's, it's a completely uh, priority shifting thing. And in that shift of priorities, you know, is the, is the thing that if it was the only way in which to help a situation, you would put on a superhero suit. And that was the thing I wanted to get to, was the sense that you, that you don't feel that this is an absurd choice. You feel that it is an inexorable choice a choice that he was always going to have to make because of the nature of the situation around him, which is already crazy. You know, so Mankara has gone nuts, and this is a perfectly rational response within that situation. I, one of the things I think you do really well <clears throat> is uh, another character who we don't realize is out there, but is out there, is the fleet. And <laughs> I love the fleet in the way it kind of like coalesces as, for us as readers. Yeah, I mean, so the yeah the fleet is is the the advantage taken of this legal hole. It's it's data havens and black prisons and everything that should be illegal everywhere, offshore banks and so on. Um, and it's all in this one tiny area that they just simply don't have to worry about whether it's legal or not because there's no law there. It's a, a created blind eye area where everything anything goes really. Um, and I mean, the trouble is, I just, I just feel it's real. You know? It seemed realistic. I just, I just think actually, it's kind of, you know, it is the case. I mean, so you know, the, it's subsequent to it, the um, the report hasn't come out yet. The, the extraordinary Senate report on on uh, the war on terror is, is still waiting to be redacted. Um, uh, but one of the things that is, uh, according to some of the leaks, is, is the discussion again of kind of a black prison site uh, on uh, Diego Garcia and the possible. And you know, so it is alleged. We don't know because um, we're in England, right? So the libel laws here are extraordinary. So I have to say it is alleged about everything. Um, so just take it as read. It's alleged. Um, uh, but the possibility is of a, a, a black prison site on Diego Garcia, or even a prison ship. Uh, you know, in that area, and that you know, uh, so I got I, I, I'm kind of one for two because there is a character in, in Tiger Man who is Ukrainian, and there is no mention of what's happening in Ukraine because it just wasn't when I read the book. Straightforwardly, you know, there was nothing going on there. It's kind of okay because he talks about Ukraine as being turbulent, so you know, we're sort of okay. But uh, by way of uh, recompense to me for this piece of uh, sort of international disobedience to what I wrote about before. You know, I, I didn't get Ukraine, but the, the world gave me the newspapers saying that maybe Diego Garcia had a black prison site, which is, of course, exactly what is in the fleet, or one of the things that's in the fleet. So, you know, yeah, then the fleet's supposed to be this kind of, I don't know, this sense of wrongness on the horizon all the time, a bad thing that exists out there. And they all turn their faces away from it. No one can look at it because it's obviously wrong. Well, one of the things, too, that I think really makes this book extraordinary is that we have these fabulous scenes of action and, uh, and a totally believable superhero. I think that you do a great job of weaving international intrigue and crime elements and local crime elements in this kind of gritty setting all together to create something that, uh, as readers, you know, we buy 100 percent. 
That's, I mean, that's what I wanted. I wanted you to buy into this story. I mean, it is a superhero origin story. You're absolutely right. It's a thriller about a guy who winds up acting out a superhero origin story. You know, it isn't, you know, it's, it's not on the face of it a primary color superhero narrative. It's very much uh, aware of the superhero comic book scene in the background, you know, and this guy who finds himself by the nature of his environment, this is the option that he has to take, and it's as extraordinary to him that he would consider doing this as it would be to us, you know. Um, so it has that kind of, I, I needed you to buy into the idea that this was in some way real. Well, that's one of the things too, that the character is throughout being made like actually just right textually in the narrative aware by virtue of the boy of the whole world of comic books and superheroes he's aware of it and there's an absolutely great scene uh, where he has some uh, thoughts about where he fits into this i think you do a great job of making a self-aware superhero so that that it's not like a, the horror movie where they walk into the house. You wanted to right. make them sure that they were, knew they were in the horror movie. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I mean, yes, exactly that. I wanted the situation where, you, you know, you, you never have that thing about don't go down into the cellar. You know, the, it, it, I wanted them to be conscious of the, uh, the environment in which they're choosing to operate so that, you know, so that you don't feel, well, that's ridiculous, you know, because, of course, you would phone home or whatever, you know. Um, because that always drives me nuts. I mean, it's a thing about, um, there's, there's, there's always this interesting thing about with, with authors at the moment, people talk about whether or not you can use, whether, you, whether or not you can put technology into fiction. You can put email or mobile phones or whatever. Partly that's because those things dramatize quite badly. Particularly in film, someone sitting at a computer is very unappealing, but you know, it's just because it's visually very dull. You know. um, and you know, typing with two fingers—it's not exciting. And it, actually, it's not a great deal more exciting in a novel. You know, you, you kind of—it's very static. You, you somehow you have to find some piece of business to do elsewhere if you want to do that. Um, but I, I wanted to be able to use. I mean, so one of the things that happens with the way, in fact, that the boy and the sergeant meet—the way that they kind of become aware of one another—is that they both have this habit of taking the battery out of their cell phone. I wanted you to sort of, you know, to be aware of technology, even though on this island there's actually not a whole ton of it and it's not a major part of the story. Just, I think you have to account for it. Otherwise, you're writing this kind of um, weird vaccinated time travel 1993, you know, where not everybody has a cell phone and, you know, they're not very common and, you know, they don't really work very well. That, it's one of the weird, it's, it's a local thing, that, though. It's one of the weird things for a Brit about watching American movies is that very often at a crucial moment, cell phone reception fails. And in the UK, that doesn't really happen very often. I mean, we complain about, you know, kind of occasionally you get no bars, whatever. But actually, you know, the coverage here is whatever it is, 98, 99% of the UK has, has pretty good cell phone coverage. And, you know, and then you go to the States and you realize that there are just huge swathes where you just actually, you can lose cell phone coverage. You know, you, it, it, does, it isn't just a kind of cinematic convenience, you know, because the country is just that much bigger. Um, you know, we are... In, in kind of land area terms, an absolutely tiny little place. Um, and it's quite easy to cover the UK in cell phone towers. It's a bit different with the Nevada desert, you know. Now, uh, you also, but you do a, make a great use of technology in that we see this incredible action sequence, experience it from the sergeant's point of view. But then we also see it 
from the cell phone internet point of view and it's even better i mean you, you up one up yourself it's so much fun just to see it happen also conceptually well it's i mean that's the thing that would happen isn't it there would be i mean you know, people would take cell phone footage if there was a you know if there's a car chase people take cell phone footage um you know so if there was a guy chasing a car on foot yeah everyone would be would have their phones out and they'd be they'd be videoing the thing and you know and people would cut it together with music on youtube and so on um, it's you know so again you know there's there's that I wanted that sense of you know that's the stuff that would happen because again it frustrates me when you know um, those things don't happen in stories it seems to me you know you can't get away with that anymore because it happens so immediately in real life um, you know the, the the discussions become instant and I mean I gather there's a, a news blackout on the town of Ferguson but you wouldn't know it from my Twitter feed I, you know but when I came out here you know it was very clear what was going on there um, what what's going on uh, in Ferguson? Well, uh, Ferguson so it's trending on Twitter right now there was there was a shooting there I think uh, of uh, an African-American kid at the weekend and the uh, the um, the situation is getting worse and worse there's a lot of arrests the, the police have arrested I think and released again a guy from the Washington Post somebody else from the Huffington Post did now accidentally or on purpose tear gassed an Al Jazeera crew and so on and well yeah and you know and I mean it's you know again it's it's not I mean the situation is as you s the, the euphemism is the situation is fluid it's not clear what's happening because we don't uh, but I uh, the the outrage that is brewing on my feed this morning is enormous now right now the thing that I want to see that I would that I have dreams about in this situation is I want to see the presidential motorcade going down the main street. I you know that would for me that's the perfect ending to that story is you know if 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 there is a uh, it was, okay just NB we're in the UK libel laws if there is a racist element to what's happening in that town between the police force and and so on. I would like to see America's first black president standing there, and they can see if they feel like doing that under the eye of the commander in chief. That would be my dream for that mo for this moment right now. Uh, I have I've I've been begging for that to happen, um, but uh, you know I mean I understand also on why that is in a sort of American political context. That's that's the the chief of the federal government coming down to a state level. It's not appropriate. La la la. But please. I would love to see that, but um, yeah, I mean, those. But those are the moments. See, that, you know, we talk about events happening in their proper time. You know, can you imagine what that would mean at this moment if you saw that? The statement that it makes, the emotional power of doing that. Um, you know, it's extraordinary. Um, it would be definitive as a moment in American history. I think. Would it give plot? to a plotless structure. It gives plot to a plotless structure. And the frustrating thing about the real world is that very often it doesn't resolve issues in a three-act structure satisfying way. But, and you know, and of course life goes on, you know, so it can't. But the, you can still have those pivotal, in, in movies they talk about um, turning points in scripts and so on. So you have, you know, these kind of crisis points where things are either made worse or resolved and so on. And, and they are, real in life also you know you can have a, a, a turning point moment and particularly in a, in a heavily media dominated society um, you can have a turning point moment um, you know the other thing um, that drives your book and would uh, that 
a parent would do is heart. And that's, I think, for all the fabulous plotting and invention that you brought to, to the stage in Tiger Man, what really nails it down is that you absolutely love every character on the page, even if they are pointed to um, at one point or another as being the good guy, quote, or the bad guy, quote. They're all very endearing, and we love to see what happens to them. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean for me, it's always about that. You, ha you have to care about the characters. You've got to care about the bad guys, too. I mean, you can care about them and loathe them. But again, that, this is the thing about, about fight scenes coming back again. You've got to care about the, the punch that gets thrown. You've got to care about the consequences and so on. But it's also, of course, true about the emotional content of a story. The villain has to be appropriately villainous. You know, they've got to, they, I mean, in general terms, in adventure stories, in thrillers, in, in comic books, villains define the playing field all the time. They, you know, they want to take on the world and change it in their own image and they uh, they have to be terrible enough that when the hero comes along you know you are impressed by the fact that the, the hero wins this is why Orrit Goldfinger is the great James Bond baddie because you really believe that Goldfinger who is just this guy and he's not even you know Goldfinger doesn't do karate he's not you know, he's not that character but you believe he could beat James Bond and his plot is diabolical and he's cruel you know He's he's a he's a cruel character, and that makes him worthy of James Bond as an adversary. You know, they they match up. Nick Harkaway's new novel is Tiger Man. Thank you for speaking with me, Nick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.